right? <coughs> um, this last session is meant to encourage you to understand the historical context of the passage. Understanding the historical context of the passage. Uh, the Bible <coughs> is not only full of history, but it's also part of history. It informs us what was going on historically and culturally at the time those things were recorded. God's people were affected by history and history was affected by God's people. As we read God's word, we see that the development of mankind, civilization, governance, kingdoms, through the centuries, they, they bleed into the pages of scripture. You cannot, you cannot cut the veins of the Bible and fail to see the blood of history oozing out. So you read of how uh, Egypt, for instance, came to have the current land laws. Goes all the way to the days of Joseph. And uh, <clears throat> there are so many things that you, you know, you read in the Bible and and you know that the Bible is true. But I want to point out to you that it is this weaving of history with the events of the Bible which is known as historical context. When you come to the Bible. And, it, and this historical context is a crucial piece of the puzzle for any student of God's word. So then we ask the question... Exactly why is historical context important when you're studying the Bible? You know that the most important rule in Bible interpretation, what's the most important rule in the Bible interpretation? Yes, and that means uh, if you're not if you if you're not if you apply that to any literature it's a c word context context what comes before the text before me what comes after my text because all that have relevance to what you're going to say from the text before you. So you cannot interpret the Bible correctly, you cannot handle the Word of God correctly if you have zero interest in what comes before or what, what comes after. But many times people pick up a verse, they run with it with no consideration to its context. Let me give you a number of examples. God has good plans for you to prosper you and not to harm you. Where does that text come from? Jeremiah? 
Alright. Have you ever preached on that text? Okay. And you tell people, God has good plans for you. Right? What, did, what plan did God have for the people of Israel? Yes? To save them from captivity. Okay? Who else wants to try? Yes. Yeah. To send them to exile for 70 years. That, that was a good plan he had for them. If you read the from the context, you will see that. And he's saying that the plan I have for you involves sending you to Babylonian exile for 70 years and bringing you back, having disciplined you. That was God's good plans for his people. But I don't think that's what people have in mind when they say, God has good plans for you. So, what comes before my verse, what comes after, will help you to know what to say. So, here you are telling people that God has plans for them, which includes 70 years of captivity. And you are preaching that to a 70-year-old man. <laughs> You'd be long dead, isn't it? <laughs> Is, anyway, so the point is made that what comes before, what comes after is absolutely important. Context. Now, when we talk about context, there are four types of context. Four aspects of context involves the following. Number one, it's a textual context. So, what does the, uh, the verse, what is the, the plain meaning of the words? What is the, the, the tenses, the nouns, the construction, structures, conjunctions, uh, punctuation marks, all those. That is the textual context. You're looking at the text. How it's written, when was it written, and so forth. So from the setting in which the Bible passage occurs, you should be able to know the people are being addressed, the grammar of the text, the genre of the text, what was the author's original intent in the text before you. If you read any book and you have zero desire to know what did he mean when he wrote, um, you're not going to go very far in understanding the author. Some of us are still learning how to use our phones, sending messages. You send a text to your wife, and then it is taken out of its context. And people can very easily divorce over that. At least fight and fight and don't speak to each other for a long, long time. But if you, look, if you looked at the text well, 
you would see that it doesn't say what you assumed it is said. Not so long ago, uh, I was going to officiate at a wedding where the couple had been married and, and they'd lived together for a long time. Uh, so the wife texted me and said please do not announce to the people that we've been living together as husband and wife something like that i didn't see the knot <laughs> i did not see the knot because if i saw the knot i would have called her and said i'm not coming thankfully i didn't see it god kept me from seeing it but then I was all very happy telling people that these guys have been married for 19 years. You know? And uh, she was there frowning, wondering, what is the pastor saying now? So later on, I, I think my wife saw the text and asked me, this is what she was telling people all the time. And she had texted you to say that you don't say. I grabbed the phone from behind and looked at the text and there it was it was there do not I didn't see it so <laughs> but you can see how many texts of the how many times we take a statement from the Bible and not see so many things there you think God is telling you that there is a good plan here, but you're not seeing the whole plan. You're only seeing a part of it. So you have to ask what is the original, the author's original intent in the text before you. So to know the textual context, a faithful exegete must endeavor to read the text in its immediate context. And the rule of the thumb is keep reading. Keep reading. Keep reading. Read what comes before and what comes after and you will grasp by God's grace the textual context. The second context is the canonical context. And that's where then your, your principle, the Bible, the scripture interprets scripture comes in. Because you ask yourself, where does this passage fit in the whole Bible? Is it in the Old Testament or is it in the New Testament? Is it a letter that has been written by Paul or is it in the Gospels? Is it the Pentateuch or is it Revelation? No person should be read or interpreted in a manner that contradicts the rest of the scriptures because of the canonical context. What is the book? from where the text is drawn ab uh, about. What is it teaching? So this is, this, is, this is the question to always ask. And then thirdly, there is what we call the systematic context. What is that? So in the Bible, there are various doctrines. You can, for instance, gather so many texts 
that teaches on marriage or on the doctrine of God or any other doctrine for that, that matter. You can bring them all together and learn different aspects of that doctrine. That's what you call systematic theology. Where you gather all these texts that teach on the same subject and seek to understand what the whole Bible teaches on a particular topic. So if you take a text, you need to ask yourself, what does the Bible teach on the subject addressed by the text before me? If, for instance, you want to learn on marriage, and the text before you is Genesis 24, where Isaac, uh, where, where, where Isaac um, is going to get his wife. That text is descriptive. It's describing what happened. Okay, it's a, it's a narrative. It's not telling you that if you want to get a wife for your son, this is what you do. Okay? Simply telling you that this is what happened to a man who wanted to get a wife for his son. This is what he did. And this is how things unfolded. So the question you ask yourself there in Genesis 24 is, which is the clearest text on marriage that is of um, a, a text that talks specifically about marriage? So then you go to other texts, perhaps you go to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 and following, and look at what that text teaches with the narrative text before you. And that then sheds more light into what you want to teach from Genesis, Genesis 24. So this is then what we call systematic context. You, you want to be sure that what you're teaching here agrees with the rest of the Bible. You're not, you know, you're not running, running away with your text on a particular direction that is completely different from the rest of the Bible. Each text meaning must be related with the rest of the Bible and all the doctrines of the Bible are consistent with each other. This is what Pastor Wale told you, that you cannot approach the Bible and say, I do not agree with you. You have to agree with the Bible. If you're not going to agree with the Bible, then don't preach from the Bible. Go grab yourself uh, a Quran or whatever other book you want to preach from. But you cannot come to the Word of God bearing God's authority and say, I don't agree with you. I will say what I want to say. That's not being a biblical preacher. And then fourthly and lastly, it's the context that I want us to consider now. Historical context. This is reading the Bible with the understanding of the historical setting of the text. Who, when, where, why the text was written must be at the fore of the by every Bible interpreter. And the question then here is why is historical context important? The historical context of any verse, book, or passage you read needs to be a factor in how you interpret what you're reading. Every word of the Bible was written at a certain point in history, in the midst of a certain 
set of circumstances. You must not ignore those circumstances. So your understanding of Ruth, the book of Ruth, has everything to do with what was happening at that time. You cannot read it without understanding what was going on there, then. The characters, the setting, the time, all that is important. So if you took the book of Ruth, for example, and said, this is teaching how mother-in-laws need to get husbands for their daughter-in-laws. That would be quite disastrous, isn't it? If you were Naomi and sent your daughter-in-law like the way she did, um, when, they are, when her parents get to hear what you did to their daughter, they might kill you. You sent my daughter to a man's house at 11 p.m. to go and touch his legs? That's not going to go very well. So you have to allow the historical context to set the scene for you. The words on the page will become much more relevant and meaningful to the specific situation you want to address when you go to a text whose original audience were either in similar circumstances or were going through something uh, very, very similar. But m most often, more often than not, I would say, this is the most ignored context. So people come to, to church and they want to dance, isn't it? And where do they, what is their go-to text? Yes? Thank you. David danced and so should do we, isn't it? That's a general interpretation of that text. David danced and so should we? Okay. When did David dance? <clears throat> yes? When did he dance? Which victory? Returning of the, the Ark of the Covenant from? The first time they attempted to return it, it didn't go very well. Someone died. Isn't it? Uzzah died. Because they were not following the instructions from the law of God. They were doing things according to their best intention. They, they had the best intention. There was no malice intended. But God didn't look at it and say, no malice intended, Uzzah may not have to die. No, Uzzah died. But then the second time, they went back to the word of God, they read it, and did things the right way. And David was very happy. He was dancing. Okay. So David danced and so should we, is what we are trying to analyze. First of all, are you David? Are you in the circumstances that David was in, 
In other words, is there any ark of the covenant that you're bringing back to East, to the land of Israel? Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's what people do. Because it doesn't fit, you become more spiritual than the Bible. Isn't it? Because it doesn't quite fit. You know, the best thing is to... Yeah, this was all in the spiritual realm. So then, let's try and see whether it can be brought into a point where it is spiritual. So, was Israel gathered for worship? Were they gathered for worship? No. So then, when we are gathered for worship, should we simply say David danced and so should we? There is no Ark of the Covenant. We've not won any victory. We, we, are not, uh, we are not David, we are not Israel, we, we are not gathered as God's community for worship. This is a very, very unique incident that happened once. And so we read David, David danced only once and we are not even told and so should you. So then you ask, how do we jump, because there is quite a leap there, from David to you, from David as a king, David as, you know, as, as the covenant, uh, as the subject of God's covenant there, and then you, no community of God, and the conclusion is, David does, and so should we, with no historical background or historical context being considered. So the question is, is that the way to handle the Bible? Is that the, the, the way we should handle the word of God? So you can see then, understanding the historical context can save you from a lot of false teaching. And you, you end up teaching things that are false, not because you said, I've been thinking about this, now I'm going to be a false teacher. No, you never, you never thought that you want to be a false teacher. It's simply that you haven't really paid attention to what is happening there and then and to see whether it's at all relevant to your situation. Now, it takes time. You have to look keenly and see what passage it is, what historical setting was there. But if you're going to garner any new insights and, and understand what the text is about, then you have to ask yourself, these questions. It means that uh, you need to employ tools that would help you grasp the context. Um, it means that you will have to use such tools and ends like Bible maps, cross-referenced Bibles, commentaries, history books. They might explain what, what was going on at the time when those verses were written. So as you study, ask yourself these kind of questions. Who is the author of this text? What was known to, about him? What happened to prompt this text to be written? Where was it written from? 
Who were the audience? What were the circumstances did they find themselves in? When in history were they living? What was going on politically or economically or culturally or even religiously at the time? These are the kind of questions you need to, to find out. But what do we do? We come to a text. Ask and shall be given to you. Knock shall be opened to you. I mean, you, you look at that text and you say, I will just teach about prayer here. But you're not asking yourself, how is it related to what has gone before us, before the text, and what comes after? The day before yesterday, uh, we had someone at our church preach on that text. And he was encouraging us, please, you must look at what goes on before. And so he took that world text, uh, chapter, chapter 6, um, uh, chapter 7, and, and sought to show us all the way up to verse 12. And that's the way we should seek to, to, to handle the text. Now let me give you then a positive example on how uh, you can take a text, uh, Luke chapter 7, verse 36 to 39, and ask the right questions to help you understand the historical context and see where it will get you. So we read in Luke chapter 7, verse 36 to 39, that when, of the Pharisees, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him, at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner, that is, she is a prostitute. This passage is packed full of historical and cultural context that, when understood, makes it come uh, to be very, very interesting. Now, we want to use a Bible tool called the NIV Cultural Background Study Bible. NIV Cultural Backgrounds Study Bible as a resource. We're able to see several interesting facts surrounding this story that help reveal its richness. Who was a Pharisee? Imagine you didn't know who the Pharisee was and you want to preach from that text. And you assume that he was a taxi driver. What would happen? You're not likely to, you're not likely to learn where the text was meant to lead you. A Pharisee was a religious leader who invited Jesus to dinner, and he would have viewed what he was doing as a virtuous thing, as a charitable thing. He wanted to score some political uh, loyalty points in doing this, or some religious 
points. Then the fact that Jesus was reclining, that word reclining, indicates that this was no normal meal uh, because reclining was typically uh, done at a, at a feast. So this meal would have been considered an honor to be invited at. It may even have been put all, uh, up, up for, for Jesus' sake. Then the alabaster jar of perfume that the woman brought with her was a fragile and beautiful, beautiful piece of pottery. The, the ointment or perfume inside was often used at this time in history to anoint the dead at their burial. And it was used by very, very wealthy people. The act of anointing someone was a gesture of courtesy and at times high honor as in the case of a king being anointed. The fact that this woman wiped Jesus' feet with her hair is also very, very significant. It was shameful for married women, as she may, uh, may well have been, to have their hair uncovered in public, leave alone, released. You know, cannot, she could not have been able to wipe if it was tightly tied. So it was significant that she was willing to use her hair to wipe the lawn's feet, both showing deep affection and humility. It was very, very humiliating for her to be willing to do this. Yet at the same time, very affectionate for her to do it. You can imagine if he was on the high table, being the chief guest of this feast, and then someone comes from nowhere, unknown to the host, and she is known to be a sinner. Let's just use that language. And then she, she goes straight to the guest at his feet, takes off his shoes, perhaps. And then instead of... So usually, culturally, a guest would have been washed his feet by the host. It may be that the host had not done that. It could be that he may have done that. I don't know. But what is for sure is that this woman comes and takes the guest who is seated at such a, a high position and becomes a point of attention for the world people, all, all the group, by doing these things. If it were you, what would you have done? Especially if she, was so, if she was known to be a sinner. You would think that he is harassing your, your guest. And so what would you have done? Bounce up, deal with this. Then she would be thrown out. The Pharisee was more, more charitable than you would have been. So these few aspects of this passage causes us to see it in a deeper way and uh, this just helps us to understand the, the, the text. So when you're preaching from this kind of a text then, you would know what to say and what not to say. Because many come to that text and they are very, very quick to throw stones at the Pharisee. The Pharisee must have been very, must have been uh, long-suffering to allow that to take place. 
Yet the point of the text is not even about the Pharisee or about the woman. It's about, it's about Christ. So you may be thinking, I wasn't born 2,000 years ago. How am I supposed to know all these things? It's tough. I, I, I cannot fully understand what was going on. Yes. But the great thing is that you don't need to know it all and you don't need to preach it all even. And please, you must not preach it all. Let me repeat. You, as a teacher of the word, must know. You must know more than your audience. So the purpose of doing this research is not for you to repeat it all to your church and say, you know, this, this book was written by Paul, uh, by John when he was in the island of Patmos. Island of Patmos is 10 miles high uh, and 20 miles wide and it's in this specific geographical location. These are the, these are the coordinates. Please don't do that. It's not going to help your, your audience to know the coordinates of Patmos. But you need to know that if it's necessary yourself. So there is a lot of things that you, do, uh, that you know that you do not need to tell your people. But it, it gives you the necessary understanding of the text you're handling because you know a little more. And it guards you from, uh, from, from um, wrenching the text from its historical setting. Researching then doesn't have to feel like an impossible task. Uh, scholars and historians have done much of the work for us. And there are many Bible tools to help us in understanding the context. And it is a gift that there are many resources out there that can provide you with the accurate picture of the historical and cultural context. <clears throat> now, I also need to point out that there are many good commentaries, there are many bad commentaries. You have to be very, very discerning uh, to know which one. Even from the web, from the internet, you have to be very careful. So, why is historical context important when studying God's word? It will reveal the purpose for which the text was written, and therefore help you to know the original intent of the author. And there is only one original intent of the author, so that uh, you keep that intention of the author at the fore as you come up with your big point out of a text. Pastor Wally is going to show you how to draw out the main point of a text when, when you identify the text from which you're going to preach. And, and we would encourage you. Are you listening? We would encourage you. Are you listening? We would encourage you to teach the Bible as it is written. So the letter to the Romans, it has Romans 1, verse 1, all the way to Romans 16. Many of us 
go to Romans 3, 23 and preach on it, fine. Preach on it if you only have one sermon to preach. But if you're preaching, if you're teaching your church, why can't you go to Romans 1, 1 today and then go to Romans 1, 2 next week? Why can't you do what we call consecutive expository preaching? Whereby it's, it's, it's verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. That's how God has given it to us. Imagine I said you my email, an email and, and, and I expect you to read it. I have 10 paragraphs and you wake up one morning and say, I, I don't have to read paragraph one. Let me read paragraph six. And then the following, the following day you decide I'll go to paragraph two and then go to paragraph six or, or eight. Are you going to understand what I'm saying? That's one of the main problems that we have in our churches because preachers are ever preaching but really never connecting anything together. So people know that there is such a thing as a book of Romans but they've lived all their Christian lives they've never had anyone preach through the book of Romans. True? It could be that some of you here have never had anyone preach through the book of Romans. And yet you've been a Christian for 20-something years. So the original intent of the author is never really discovered. Because it's just this disjointed reading here. Pick up, pick up Jeremiah 29 verse 11. Teach it. Don't read the rest of the, of the passage. And come up with this grandeur, grandeur and majestic plan that God has for his people. But really... It's a plan that you yourself who is preaching do not even know. I think I have to I have to berate you there. You preachers. There is something very, very, very wrong with our preaching when it lacks the necessary context. And then it's not just that it lacks necessary context, it's that it also lacks Jesus Christ as revealed in that text. So you see, when you miss these things, how are you going to apply the text to your audience? So then you end up with the same kind of application every day. Anyone who wants to be saved, you Christian, or uh, it's about prosperity, or, or pick up whatever you think people need to hear, but really, it's not in the text. The text says nothing about those things. What you may be saying is not, it may not necessarily be evil, but it's not in the text. And that's a big problem. You see, when it's not in the text, you will not bind up people's consciences from the scriptures. And when, when the consciences of men are not bowed by the scriptures, the spirit is not in it. They will not be convicted of sin, of judgment, and of righteousness. They will not be. Again, when you, when you know the historical context, it will enrich what you take away from the passage and help you to understand the full meaning so that then application will be the most relevant and spot on in order to bite the consciences of your hearers to conform them to the likeness of Jesus Christ.
And then thirdly, it will help you grasp why the words used were significant to their original audience so that you may also use the words of the Bible meaningfully. The mo- Do you know what is the most abused biblical phrase? Yes? It is? It is praise the Lord. It is praise the Lord. And do you know why I say it is praise the Lord? You hear a preacher say, you know, brothers, I was coming from Mary one day. Praise the Lord. <laughs> brothers, I saw this prostitute. Praise the Lord. Ay, 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 ay. But we hear that all the time. It just becomes another way of saying full stop. That's all it's used to mean, full stop. Let me just say this uh, as I finish. When my pastor gave me an opportunity to preach the first time, he sat down there and he was shaking his head. He was shaking his head, looking at me with total disbelief. It's just the Lord who restrained him from coming to the pulpit and punching me. But at the end of the service, I knew he was not happy. He was not happy. So unhappy he was that when I came down, he told me, did you have a message? (laughs) What was the main objective of that message? And I was squirming. I knew I was in trouble. (laughs) And then he, he, he broke the news. Do you know how many praise the Lord you had? He said, he told me, when I got tired and bored, I decided to count them. So there may be more, but I counted 87 of them. Praise the Lord, 87 times. And then he told me, how long does it take to say, praise the Lord, and for people to respond? Maybe five seconds, maybe ten. Multiply ten seconds by 87 times. Well, someone is wasted. So whatever it is you are trying to tell us, all that is ringing in our minds is praise the Lord. You will never ascend to that pulpit again, he told me. That was it. And we were going to have lunch together. He said, go home. <laughs> Some of us need to be told that. That helped me. And so you've not had a single... Praise the Lord. Except when I must say it. So really, context. Context. It will increase the likelihood of you interpreting and applying the Bible correctly. Handling the scriptures correctly is the only way of being a faithful expositor and preacher of the word. That's the only way to preach. That's the only way to teach as herons of Christ. Amen? Praise the Lord. Let's pray. We thank you, our Father and our God, for your word. 
and you've called us Lord to handle it with the necessary seriousness and care give us then that that seriousness of mind as we as we handle rightly the word of truth because if any sinner is going to be saved is going to be saved from the power of your word but how many times do we miss it and go on a tangent go on rabbit trails go our own way and fail to see what you're telling us please lord keep us from going that direction keep us lord from teaching what people want to hear or teaching things that we've barely prepared half baked and truths and such for we know that that will save no one clearly that's why we don't see as many conversions because we do things and bring words that uh, we ourselves have invented and fail to preach your word as it was intended to be taught forgive us from the from the from our past laziness and failures and carelessnesses and grant us a new resolve to walk in the light of what you've ha- we've heard in the name of our savior jesus christ we pray Amen.